0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, for the first time in Proverbs 19. We're going to get our first look at Proverbs 19 this morning. We uh, wrapped up chapter 18 last week, and I noticed we have picked up the pace a little bit. We only had a total of 13 classes in that 18th chapter. So the the pace has picked up from uh, the slowest chapter we've had was chapter 14. And uh, that was really, uh, I don't know, I, I struggled with it and wasn't happy with it. So I'm pleased that uh, the Holy Spirit has allowed us to pick things up a little bit. I don't want to go 50 years in Proverbs and, and be 100 years old by the time um by the time we get through chapter 31 some of uh i understand the virtuous woman chapter is is a highlight and uh and and a lot of women have been very patiently virtuously waiting for the uh, virtuous woman chapter and so it'd be kind of nice if we got there sometime in the next 50 years and uh we'll just see how long it takes us but if it's uh 13 classes a dozen classes per chapter um that's uh, that's doable. Rapture pending, of course. All right. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge and who hurries his footsteps. And he who hurries his footsteps errs. The foolishness of a man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. Verses 1 through 3 are a unit. I'm convinced they're a unit. We're going to be looking at them very difficult in the poetry and a lot of struggles uh, that some folks have with it, but we're going to take verses 1 through 3 as a unit and handle it here today. Before we get started, let's ask the Lord for His faithfulness to set aside our distractions to bless our time of study, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank You for Your faithfulness and the blessing that we have to study. We thank You for Proverbs, Father, and it's obviously it's not a pauline epistle it's not uh it's not like the gospels it's not like any other passage of scripture father and and uh this is a different kind of study and i thank you for it and i thank you for the blessing that we've had now for all these lessons to uh, to go through this book i pray that you take us through chapter 19 as you've been so faithfully doing each and every step of the way we thank you and we praise you father in jesus christ's name amen all right um in fact, it might even be useful too. One of the—I uh, forgot to keep it started. Let me start my Bible software back up again. One of the uh, introductions uh, that I thought was was quite useful is in the the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Another introduction I thought was useful, not in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, in the Word Biblical Commentary. I felt so. Let me open that up here. Um. Word Biblical Commentary Proverbs. And uh, in the introduction here to chapter 19, I forget who wrote this, this is uh, by Roland Murphy. wrote volume 22 in the Word Biblical Commentary series. And as he introduces chapter 19 got a lot of notes on the manuscripts and on the the different Hebrew readings, but just under form, structure, setting, I thought this was useful. There is no obvious structure to this chapter, and only somewhat strained connections can be made. Wibre, that's another author, thinks that there has been a deliberate collection of sayings concerning the importance of knowledge and instruction, and or the behavior of children. And Wibre is correct. We have more references to children in this chapter than we've had since we left chapter 9, since we crossed into the personal and public wisdom portion of the book, which really contains chapters 10 through 24. It is difficult to ascribe this to deliberate intention. There are several catchwords, such as good, that we have in verses 1 and 2. Verses 4 through 7 also have catchwords, such as friend and poor, and they deal with the poor-rich differences we commented upon that at the end of chapter 18. We said that the final part of chapter 18 contains that conflict between rich and poor and that, that would we would return to that in the early part of chapter uh, 19. In fact, it's verses 4 through 7 in uh, chapter 19. There are four Yahweh Proverbs and that's interesting because uh, there's many of the chapters that don't mention Yahweh at all. Uh, and so the chapters that do mention Yahweh get your attention and then For a chapter to have four uses of Yahweh, uh, that grabs your attention as well. So verse 3, verse 14, verse 17, verse 21. We also have a fear of the Lord uh, appearance in verse 23. So these are kind of some initial observations and things that this author uh, jumped out at him and he wanted to share with his readers and uh, got my attention as well. Synonymous parallelism is more common than antithetic in this chapter. Remember the different kinds of parallelism. Synonymous where you have agreement between the A part and the B part of of each verse. So you don't have the first part of the verse and then a but and then the opposite thing that gets made. Uh, Synonymous. Uh, The antithetical for example, uh, if you glance back up we just had a couple examples in verses 23 and 24. Uh, The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. And so in the A and B part of verse 23, clearly they're antithetical. In other words, they're opposites, they're differences. The antithetical, and that's the most common form throughout the whole book of Proverbs, is antithetical. When you have synonymous, it's not used as commonly, although it is used. Uh, It's not rare, but it's not as common. I think uh, uh, verse 22 might be an example of that at the end of chapter 18. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Those aren't opposites. Those aren't different. Uh, Some people would view them as um, synonymous or they would actually view them as synthetic. It actually builds. They're not identical either, but they they, they go together because they're in agreement and the second one is an intensification of the first. So we're going to see more of that here in chapter 19. We're going to see more uh, synonymous parallelism as opposed to the antithetic parallelism. Then uh, there are more admonitions than usual. In fact, we kind of haven't seen as many since we left chapter 9. Most of the admonitions are in, in the, the parental wisdom portion. In in chapters 1 through 9 where parents are pleading with their children and so there's a lot of admonishments in those early chapters. There haven't been so many since chapter 10. Until we get to this chapter it picks up again. There are more admonitions than usual and, bizarrely enough, I can't explain it, the appearance of my son in verse 27 is singular in these chapters. Singular in these chapters. Understand? Understand? It's the only place we see it. Like, what's it doing here? <laughs> so, yeah, when you're looking down towards the end of chapter 19 and you see in verse 27 where it says, cease listening, my son, to discipline and you will stray from the words of knowledge. And you read that verse and you say, jeepers, what's that doing here? That should be back in chapters one through nine. <laughs> you know, how did, they, how did this little bugger escape? And, and somehow it made its way out of chapters one through nine and weasel its way over here into this chapter. And it's it's curious. So it is unique, it is singular, but I think along with the other admonitions that are expressed um, in the second person that are addressed, there are other verses that speak about a son, like verse 18, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. It's curious to me, and I think in this chapter, like we had a hinge between chapter 9 and chapter 10, if In those early chapters, we're talking about parental wisdom, the pleading of parents with their children. And then in chapters 10 and following, we have adult standing. We have believers now in their adult capacity that are walking with the Lord, that are standing before the Lord in their own generation, in their own capacity, accountable before God, either living in the truth or not living in the truth and and facing the consequences of conforming your life to wisdom or conforming your life to this world. Clearly, these chapters represent adult capacity, whereas the first nine chapters were a child being trained up by their parents. Now, in this chapter, it seems to me anyway, that this adult capacity has grown yet again. This adult capacity has grown as well to the point that they are now starting to have their own children. They are now starting to to now become parents themselves and now start to be concerned about the children coming after them at this point so it's not just an adult capacity but now an adult parental capacity that starts to be hinted at in uh, in these references here and so we'll touch upon that as uh, as we come to each of those verses in uh, in this study all right so that's that i wanted to share that with you here let's start with the first three verses And uh, let's read through it again, because we're going to see, I'm just going to go one, two, and three. You'll see why four and following is different. But as you read through these, you're going to see, wait a minute, they're different. We don't have an antithetic parallelism. We don't have a, there's something else that's happening here. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. Now, this jumps out at us because of what we're expecting and then what we don't see, okay? So if I'm reading the A part, better as a poor man who walks in his integrity, I'm thinking, okay, I'm I'm, I'm getting ready now. I'm getting ready for a rich guy, and I'm getting ready for no integrity, okay? Right? Because I'm thinking. I'm thinking antithetical parallelism or synthetic parallelism. So I'm thinking i got a poor man, I've got integrity. But then I get to the B part, and I have perverse in speech, okay, well, that's the opposite of integrity. So now I'm thinking, now I need the opposite of a poor man. But I don't have the opposite of a poor man, do I? I have a fool. So where's the antithetic parallelism? It's not there. Where's the synonymous parallelism? It's not there. Where's the synthetic parallelism? Well, it's starting to be there, but it's really not there. What we actually have here is we have a broken poetry. We have a broken poetry that continues in verse 2, continues in verse 3. And it's 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 kind of neat to see it. All right. And so in verse 2, we have an also. So we have an also. It is not good. It is not good. Now, that not good is a contrast with verse 1 because the better in verse 1 is our statement of goodness. The statement of goodness, it is good. A poor man, it is good for the poor man who walks in his integrity. Also it is not good for a person to be without knowledge and he who hurries his footsteps errs. So what's this doing as it continues verse 1? So I'm looking at verse one, and the A part is the only part I like. <laughs> the A part is is the, the part that I want to put myself into. Uh, the B part, I don't want to be a, a pervert or a fool. So uh perverse speech and a fool. In one B I don't want to be there. Uh in one A, I wanna be there. It might not be fun to be poor, but I I, I wanna be I wanna be in my integrity. Yeah. So, so I'm going to stay in my integrity. I'm going to stay in this A part. I'm going to avoid the B part. And then in verse 2, I don't want to be in the A part or the B part. And in verse 3, I don't want to be in the A part or the B part. So when we take verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, 1A and B, 2A and B, 3A and B, we have six segments in a tri-stitch, we have six segments, or you could think of it as a hexa-stitch, six clauses of this, of this poem, and it's only the first one that's good, and a chain of five bad ones that follow, a chain of five negative statements that show you the consequences for abandoning your integrity. Stick with your integrity. And that's the main point here. Chapter 19 begins, so point one in the outline, chapter 19 begins with three verses warning to maintain personal integrity no matter the cost. Warning to maintain personal integrity no matter the cost. Even if there's a financial price to pay. Even if you experience poverty. And you have a season of want, a season of need. That season lasts however long God wants it to last. That, that want, that poverty to be poor. Proverbs says a lot about wealth, it says a lot about poverty. And, and the circumstances themselves are neither right nor wrong. But it's our faith and keeping our eyes on the Lord despite the circumstances is what he's calling us to do. So chapter 19 begins with three verses warning to maintain personal integrity no matter the cost. Now, when we get to verse 4, let me show you why we're handling these different and why the poetry changes. In verse 4, again, the A part and the B part, wealth adds many friends. But a poor man is separated from his friend. Okay, whew, back to normal again. <laughs> Alright, we're back to a typical Hebrew poetry, we're back to typical Proverbs, uh, antithetical parallelism. I've got the wealth and the friends in the A part. I've got a poor man separated from his friends in the B part. We're back to, we're back to typical Proverbs again with verse 4. Same thing with the verse 5. It's, synthetic, or it's, it's uh, uh, synonymous. A false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will not escape. So again, we've got an A part and a B part. They're connected, they're synonymous. We're back to Hebrew poetry again with verse 4, with verse 5, with verses 6 and following. We'll, ha- we'll handle the rest of the chapter in that way. But verses 1 through 3 are a unit. Verses 1 through 3 are a six-part unit where only the A part is good. And then 1B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B, we have five lines of what happens when you abandon your integrity. Okay. So better, or shall we say good. It is good. Tov. Tovarish. <laughs> Actually, now I can't be speaking Russian at this point. It's, it's, it's still Hebrew. But uh, the tov means good and the rish means a poor man, and, uh, and I don't know that the, the Russian comrade has anything to do with the Hebrew uh, poor, uh, poor man, but it is good for the man to be poor, tovarish. All right. While poverty may be the consequence of negligence, it may also be the consequence of maintaining integrity. And we have to be clear on this. And we've we've discussed this in previous studies on riches and and, and poverty. While poverty may be the consequence of negligence, and and often it is, often it is, it may also be the consequence of maintaining integrity. It may actually be God's undeserved suffering whereby He tests us for our benefit. There may be other things at work. And the person is not to blame for the situation he finds himself in as he's in the will of God. Let's remind ourselves of a couple of things we've studied related to poverty back in chapter 10. 10.4 10, This is early in the, in the public, personal and public wisdom section. So the Proverbs of Solomon, right? We have a new heading, a section heading here. And um, verse 2 says, Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. So we want to have a right orientation to money as an adult. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but He will reject the craving of the wicked. So keep your integrity. Walk in righteousness. God won't let you starve to death. Even if you have a season... of of financial testing, of financial humility. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And so there's a general principle that we can glean from that, and we taught it back in chapter 10. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand. So if you're going to be a slug, there's consequences. There's consequences. But really, you're already poor anyway. You're poor in spirit because what's what's motivating your sluggishness? What's motivating your negligence? You have a spiritual poverty that's leading to your financial poverty. And that spiritual poverty is keeping you from being diligent. It's, It's motivating your negligence. But the hand of the diligent not only becomes rich, but also makes rich. The the diligent hand is productive. The diligent hand is wealth-producing, income-producing and wealth-producing, not only personally, but for others as well, for your family, for your clan, for your tribe, for your nation, for your local church. And so there's a principle there. And it's a good principle. Poverty may be the consequence of negligence. That can happen, that does happen. But other things can also happen. That's what, that's what I'm trying to say, <laughs> which keeps us from jumping to conclusions. It keeps us from becoming arrogant or becoming judgmental. It keeps us from looking at a brother or looking at a sister and saying, "Well, what's wrong with you? Or you're getting what you deserve. Or you should have. You should work harder." And, and we, we can stop and say, "Wait a minute. In this case, it may not be negligence that's producing this poverty. In this case, it may be something else." Okay. And so we want to be prayerful about it. We want to be humble about it. We want to search the scriptures. We want to be wise as serpents while harmless as doves and, 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 and consider the alternatives, why uh, our brother is in the, the position that he's in and how we can best help. Because a lot of help isn't help when we're misrecognizing uh, the, uh, the reasons for the poverty. All right. Chapter 13 and verse 23 as well. The, uh, let's see. There's other context here. I can spot some poverty and shame in verse 18. I can spot some inheritance in verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. In other words, to the next generation and the generation after that, grandchildren that can be listed in in a person's will, for example. And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. And uh, there's a principle, too, which is curious to me. All right. And then um, abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. Understand what that means. Why is the ground fallow? Because the guy didn't go work it. He didn't weed it. He didn't plow it. He didn't sow the seeds. He didn't work it. And had he worked it, there's tons of food in there. There's abundant food sitting there waiting to be harvested. But it can't be harvested because it was never sown. It can't be sown because it was never plowed. It was never, the thorns weren't removed. The rocks weren't removed. The soil wasn't prepared. The seed wasn't sown. But there's abundant food just waiting. And the slug didn't do it. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. So they're here too. It's the same agreement that we had in chapter 10. Poverty may be the consequence of negligence. And in the in such a case, in such a case, do we help the person by throwing money at them? Or do we help the person by Bible teaching and exhortation and example and and... What really needs to happen is a, is a spiritual understanding of God's principles for diligence. Instill those values, and you're going to help the man for the rest of his life. All right, but if you just reward the sluggard, you actually do him harm. You actually reward, you 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 enable the wrong behavior, and you and you reward the wrong thinking, and all that does is reinforce more wrong thinking. Like if a city decides to tolerate public vagrancy, they're going to get more of it. You're going to get more of it because you're enabling it. Now, now all of that is true, but we also have to consider that it may also be the consequence of maintaining integrity. There can be other causes for the poverty. And in Proverbs 19.1, when we say better is a poor man who walks in his integrity, we've got to look at that and say, well, wait a minute. This guy's not poor because he was negligent. This guy has integrity. There's something else at work. There's another component here that we want to understand. That there can be other factors. Obviously, the whole book of Job is predicated upon this. In the sense that Job wasn't guilty of anything for having all of his wealth stripped away. Undeserved suffering in the angelic conflict. Testing of our faith. Maintaining integrity when there's a price to be paid, as in the case here. Are you going to hold fast your integrity? Job's wife said, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. What good has your integrity done you? You're broke. Your kids are all dead. My kids are all dead. Mrs. Job had a tough time with this test. Job passed it with flying colors. Mrs. Job, not so much. <laughs> okay? Not at all. Which became one more test on top of everything else for Job. Like I said, the, the biggest test for Job was not killing his kids. It was leaving his wife alive. It was the, <laughs> the toughest thing that Job had to deal with. All right. I think there's another example here in 1 Samuel 18. David was poor. Was he he a slug? Was he negligent? Was he? No. But he's the seventh son of a very modest man in uh, Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was a very modest village in a very modest clan. In fact, in such a small clan it wasn't even counted among the clans of Judah. And uh, what kind of inheritance are you expecting when there's seven older brothers in you? I forget, were there seven older or was he, I think there were seven older and then he was the eighth. Or maybe there were six older and he was the seventh, I forget. Anyway, <laughs> he's not a, he's not a wealthy fellow. And because his brothers were all off chasing the big time, serving in the army and, and going with Saul and doing all this stuff. It fell upon the the run to the litter. I mean, he was he was the homebody. He was he was uh, watching the sheep. He was caring for Jesse and Mrs. Jesse. He was looking after uh, looking after his parents and tending the sheep. He certainly wasn't advancing his own career. And so, um, in chapter eighteen, here we were here last week looking at the friendship of Jonathan and David, but. Further down in the chapter here, he admits his poverty when Saul is going to give him his daughter in marriage. And uh, Saul's servants uh, spoke these words to David. Let's see. you can become the king's son-in-law. And uh, in the context for this, Remember we discussed this when uh, he became great friends with Jonathan and then David uh, Saul became furious. The women were singing and dancing and this this song came out it rose it became number one in the top 40 uh, pop charts when uh, Saul had slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands and they start playing this on the radio every day and, and Saul uh, just is just as furious. and it says in verse eight he became very angry and he looked at David with suspicion. In verse 9, and then he throws a spear. Uh, In verse 10, it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house. Keep that raving in mind because we have an expression similar to this in Proverbs 19.3. He raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. Now, previous to this, David's music could, could soothe the, the savage beast. Prior to this, David's ministry, his music ministry had a spiritual value that banished the demons. This just shows you the intensification of demonization because David's playing and it doesn't stop a thing. And the spear was in Saul's hand and he hurled the spear for he thought I will pin David to the wall but David escaped from his presence Twice. <laughs> I wouldn't have stuck around after the first one. Okay? Interesting, interesting episode here. So now what can he do? What's worse than chucking a spear at the guy? I know. I'll give him my daughter. <laughs> All right. Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. And um, David was prospering. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence, appointed him as commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And so put some distance there, assign him a combat command, put him on the front line, and send him into as many scrapes as you can, hoping that he dies in the battle. Except he doesn't die and he keeps winning. And he gets more and more famous every time he comes back with a victory. (laughs) So he went out and came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, went out and came in before them. You know, how much of this is parallel today in our politics? And no matter, you know, how wealthy the, the country gets, no matter how the stock market booms and how everything is going great. But you can't tell that to the opposing party. They hate him. They're going to vote to impeach him today. They're in dread. I find this curious. All right. But all of Israel and Judah loved David. He went out and came in before them. So Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Marab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistine be against him. And uh, <laughs> yeah. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time when Marab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the, the holothite, for a wife. And uh, whoever he was, whatever else happened next, we don't know. Okay? But now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. And he thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him. He's thrilled. This is, a better, this is a better sister. Okay, Marab was the older, but this one pleases Saul more because I think it's because of her non-spiritual attitude. It's like Leah and Rachel. Leah was spiritually minded. Rachel was horrible. Same thing here. I don't have a lot of good things to... The Bible doesn't have a lot of good things to say about Michael. All right. So Saul thought I would give her to him that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son in law today. You know, and it was really kind of a betrayal that he offered the older daughter and then took it away and gave it to this other guy. Now he's dangling a daughter in front of him again. And uh <laughs> Saul commanded his servants saying, "Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you now, therefore become the king's son in law so this is a grand conspiracy to get David and not be so humble to not be you know to not uh, deny his eligibility to be the, the son in law because he wouldn't he'd would probably just repeat the same speech that he made before about who am I and what is my life or my father 's family in Israel that there is no way that the the clan of the Ephraite should ever be linked to political power. So uh, he gets the servants in on this. So Saul's servant spoke these words to David, but David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. A poor man and lightly esteemed. Two issues there. Okay? Poverty is one thing, but then the, the social esteem. And it's curious to me that he is as praised as he's praised, and the people love him, and they're writing songs, and they're singing, but he doesn't hear a word of it. Or he doesn't let it go to his head. Or he, um, he fails to recognize that he's esteemed at all. He's convinced that he's lightly esteemed. And that's, that's an interesting study, too, when it comes down to that. But here's the term poor man. And this whole side trip, I'm probably taking too long on this, but this whole side trip is to illustrate that poverty is not the consequence of negligence every single time. That you can be poor and be godly. You can be poor and it's just God has not put you into the, the, the place where you're going to be at some point. You're still learning these lessons you have to learn at this point. And uh, and there's other factors that apply as well. So it's the same vocabulary. The word is reish. It's the same vocabulary, or roche. It's the same vocabulary. It comes up again, by the way, (laughs) after the Bathsheba episode, when Nathan comes to him and he starts telling him the story. He says, there once was a poor man. He uses the same language, the same rich. And uh, the poor man with a little ewe lamb that he loved, and then uh, the rich man who killed the lamb to feed the dinner guest. This is the same terminology that's used in, uh, later in, in David's life. Wakes him up to his own carnality. All right. Well... I'm already on a long rabbit trail in this chapter. This is where uh, he says, I'm a poor man, lightly esteemed. Um, Saul then said in verse 25, Tell David, the king does not desire any dowry except 104 skins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. And this is the whole plot. That David's going to go out there and try to collect 104 skins, and uh, and he's going to die. I mean, who, who could possibly survive that? <laughs> but David does. In fact, he goes out and kills 200 Philistines, brings back the foreskins and said, here you go, how do you like me now? <laughs> okay. And uh, rose up and he went, and he and his men struck down 200 men among the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full number to the king. Double portion. Double portion. David had a spiritual capacity to understand double portion. All right. So there's other reasons why poverty may be experienced. And what Proverbs 19 is talking about is, is uh, maintaining integrity. The word for integrity is the Hebrew word tome, T-O-M, tome, tom. And uh, it's Strong's number 8537. It's used 23 times. Old Testament has. And surprisingly enough, um, out of those 23 times, the bulk of them are in Psalms and Proverbs. It's like 7 and 7 that are in Psalms and Proverbs. Um, The handful of uses beyond Psalms and Proverbs, uh, I think, are are fairly well known to us. The idea of integrity. When uh, Abraham was afraid of Abimelech, the Philistine, He was afraid because he thought there was no fear of God in this place. And there was fear of God in this place. More than Abraham had, in fact. The Gentile feared God more than Abraham did because Abraham was fearing the Gentile. But in Genesis 20, Abraham and Sarah are sojourning in Gerar. And uh, they come up with this uh, story... She is my sister. It was the same lie they told in Egypt years ago. And and they should have learned, because back then it got them in trouble. Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's harem, and and it was a miracle that he got Sarah back. But now they're trying the same routine again with uh, the Philistines and Gerar. She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took her. (laughs) Said, oh, she's your sister. Great. I want her. And the king gets what he wants. It's good to be the king. But God came to Abimelech in a dream, and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is married. You're a dead man because you've taken a married man, uh, his wife. Now, Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, and it's, it's curious to me, Lord, he's talking to God in a dream, and he has more fear of God than Abraham does. said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister. She herself said he is my brother. In the tome of my lave, in the integrity of my heart, and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And so this gives us pretty much what we need to know about integrity. It's, it's heart integrity that shapes our hands and what we do. What we are shapes what we do. And do we have a personal integrity? Do we not have a personal integrity? And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the tome of your lave, in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. I also have kept you from sinning against me. It was really a miracle. God's sovereign grace interceded and hindered Abimelech, however he did it, I don't know, put him to sleep or something, uh, because Sarah was beautiful and he has a brand new wife and you know, I can imagine Abimelech wanted to, you know, have sex with her that first night. Just get her home and here we go. But God's sovereignty kept him from doing that. I kept you from sitting against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you. Isn't that amazing? He has to pray. Really, <laughs> this is an intercessory prayer on the part of a prophet This is why, you know, we understand the Abrahamic covenant has already vested Abraham as the steward, as a Jewish steward. Now, he has to pray for this Gentile king, even though it's his fault. (laughs) That's the worst kind of intercession at all, because it's his fault. He will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And so he does. He's humble. He repents. He gives Sarah back to him and he has to pray for him. Verse 11 is where he said, I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. So here's our first introduction to integrity. And it's in Genesis 20. We also find it in 1 Kings 9 and verse 4. And this is Solomon talking about his father David and David's integrity. the Lord talking to Solomon. Solomon builds the temple and uh, the Lord's going to come to him and appear to him in a vision. And um, the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked. Remember, the Davidic covenant has already been given. It's an unconditional covenant. But it's an unconditional covenant that speaks in two modes because it speaks about a future son of David who is the Christ, but it also speaks about a short-term son of David who maybe will walk, maybe won't walk in the ways of David. And if he does, and if he doesn't, so you have unconditional covenant covenant that still incorporates conditional language for the, for the closer son. And that closer son, of course, is Solomon. So if you will walk before me as your father David walked in tome of lave, integrity of heart, and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David. So in other words, it's not just going to be the son of David, son of Solomon. The Messiah would be known as son of David, son of Solomon. But as it is, it's not. Solomon dies the sinner to death, and the Messiah prophecies are all vested in the son of David. Not the son of David, son of Solomon, but just the son of David. It's the throne of David. It's not the throne of David, throne of Solomon. It's the throne of David. You understand what I'm saying? (coughs) It's like when God becomes the God of Abraham... He then becomes the God of Abraham and Isaac. He then becomes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's forever known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's forever known as the God of Israel when Jacob is renamed Israel. So when we talk about the throne of David, it could have become the throne of David, the throne of Solomon. But sadly, it was not. Sadly, it is now the throne of David. For all eternity will be known as the throne of David. And significantly enough, The Mary's genealogy that we track in the Gospel of Luke does not track it through Solomon. Mary's genealogy tracks it through Nathan, through a son that we know nothing about here in this uh, chapter of 1 Kings. All right. That's a different study. The integrity of heart. So we had it it in Genesis 20. We had it in 1 Kings 9. In both cases, integrity was connected to heart. Tome resides in the lave in the heart Job 4.6 Eliphaz the Temanite he says uh, if one ventures a word with you we become impatient but who can refrain from speaking Behold, you have admonished many and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand. You have strengthened feeble knees and knees. He's not talking about the current speech. He's talking about over the past of Job's career. For years and years, Job has been a pinnacle of Bible teaching, of, of spiritual encouragement. They didn't have a Bible. All right. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble, harvest it. In other words, Job, you reap what you sow. What have you done? You're guilty. You've done something. Oh, you who are holding fast to your integrity. You wouldn't be going through what you're going through if you really had integrity. So... This is the illustration of what I'm saying in this main point. Yes, poverty may be the consequence of negligence, but it doesn't have to be. There can be other factors. And we don't want to just jump on somebody and condemn them that they're getting what they deserved, Which is what Eliphaz is doing here. Alright, now the rest of these are in the Psalms and the Proverbs. And some of these are fairly well-known and some of these are not so well-known. In Psalm 7, you'll notice uh, there's some conflict going on. Enemies. In verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them uh, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, my tzaddik, and my integrity that is within me. My integrity, my tome. David surrenders himself to the sovereignty of God. He he leaves his enemies in the hands of the courtroom of heaven. And he maintains his integrity as a... uh, matter of confidence that God will vindicate him. God will rule accordingly. According to my righteousness, according to my integrity. There's no guilt. How do you impeach when there's no crime? How do you convict when they've done nothing? According to my righteousness and my tome, my integrity that is within me. Verse uh, chapter 25 and verse 21. Some of these, like I say, are better known than others. Uh, Let's see. Verse 16 says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Understand, your enemies, this is a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and authorities. Understand that you're very vulnerable when you have these kind of enemies because you may just want to take matters in your own hands and fight for yourself and do something ugly. And then you're just destroying your own soul in the process. That's why it says, guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. This is Tom and Yashar, the integrity and the uprightness, for I wait for you. Chapter 26, verse 1. Vindicate me, O my Lord, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering trusted in the Lord without wavering. See, the world tries to think that you can be an ethical, moral person and not be saved or not be a Christian or not follow the Bible, that you can have a worldly philosophy and be just as moral, just as ethical, just as upright. You can have the same kind of integrity a Christian has. Wrong. You can have a morality, but it's a human morality. You can have an ethic, but it's a human ethic. And the world's wisdom, even the ascetic wisdom, is foolishness before God. Notice how linked these things are, the integrity and the walk by faith. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering because we walk by faith and not by sight. And we have the linkage of it there. Verse 11, As for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. He leaves himself in uh, the hands of God. My foot stands on a level place, and the congregations I shall bless. The Lord in the congregation's plural, I shall bless the Lord. Psalm 41 and verse 12. And Jesus had Judas Iscariot, David had Ahithophel, we have the betrayer, the whisperer, and uh, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout and triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. This is David in his integrity or this is Jesus in his integrity. This is uh, Ahithophel in his betrayal or this is Judas Iscariot, his betrayal. This is both historical and prophetical. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Psalm 78, 72. 78, it's a long psalm. 72 is the last verse of the psalm. Uh, all the faithfulness of the Lord, everything the Lord's done in His faithfulness. Verse 70 says, He chose David his servant. He took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his uh, people, and Israel, his inheritance. I mean, that poverty, that life of shepherding the ewes was perfect. It was the best training imaginable to prepare David to shepherd the nation of Israel, to be a shepherd king. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. You talk about a career path that prepares you for what's coming up. Shepherding prepared David to be king according to the integrity of his heart, guiding them with skillful hands. If you're all wrapped up about your skill, if you're all wrapped up about what you think you can do or can't do in terms of ministry, quit it. Just focus on the integrity of your heart. The skill of your hands, God will provide that. God will work in you to provide that. Just you keep working on the integrity of your heart. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep keep yourself in the Word of God. Psalm 101 and verse 2. Psalm 101, another Davidic song. It's the, uh, it's the uh, keynote address, or the inauguration address, shall we say, for Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. And David issues it prophetically a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. I will sing of the loving kindness and justice. To You, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will You come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. This is the the vow, the oath, the the statement that Jesus makes when he accepts the throne of David and begins his millennial reign. We can uh, think of this in terms of David when he becomes king and what he utters. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. There are certain people, they're not going to be on my staff. They're not going to be in my administration. They're not going to work for my government. That's what David says. And prophetically, this is what Jesus says when He begins the Millennial Kingdom. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will be minister to me. <laughs> you know, who, who are you going to pick to be in your administration if you're a president? Who's going to be your secretary of defense, your secretary of state, your secretary of the treasury? And are you looking at earthly qualifications? Or are you finding believers with doctrine? Finding believers, mature believers with uh, integrity of heart. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will be ministered to me. Prime consideration for appointment to political office in the administration of David and in the administration of Jesus. Are these believers that love the Lord, that fear the Lord, that that walk before Him with integrity? He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Oh, you told a lie? You're fired. Oh, you... you, uh, you issued a a, a petition to a judge under false pretenses, you're fired. Any deceit, you're fired. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. Morning by morning, if an unbeliever is found in Jerusalem, he executes them. This is prophetic of Jesus in the millennial kingdom. So my advice, if there's an unbeliever that visits during the day, um, don't stay overnight, <laughs> okay? Make sure your return flight ticket is for the same day and get out of town before, uh, before morning. All right, Psalm 101. It's a great psalm. I'm out of time, but we also have Proverbs 2.7, Proverbs Proverbs 10. 13, 19, 20, 28. We'll pick up on this in a couple of weeks because actually pick up on this in three weeks. We've got a two week, two week break. So we'll come back in three weeks. and we'll pick up right here because we want to have our, our base in integrity so that we see what the consequences are when you leave integrity. And in Proverbs 19, that's 1b, 2a, 2 B, 3A, 3b. There's five statements of consequences. For the believer that abandons integrity and it, it's ugly, okay It's not good, so Merry Christmas, <laughs> thank you, Father, thank you for the study, thank you for the admonition, and uh, we 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 do want to maintain our integrity even if even if it leads to poverty, better is the poor who maintains his integrity. So Father, uh, open our eyes to these powerful teachings. Uh, Show us where we make our applications. Show us the warnings of the consequences, Father, for the life without integrity, the life without the fear of the Lord, the life without your word. It's uh, like a little miniature three-verse edition of Ecclesiastes right here in Proverbs 19. So um, open our eyes to these warnings so that we can flee from them and flee to you and adjust our life accordingly. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.